Fernando Iannucci and his Facts and Fancies. Facts and Fancies by and with Armando Iannucci. On writing a book. Writing a book is an undertaking far more horrific than I'd ever imagined. Not only must the writer come up with several tens of thousands of words, not all of them the same, but he or she must arrange them in an order that makes some sort of sense to the first-time reader. It's no use starting your book, Linford Christie stepped into the horse box, bemused by the wall of mushrooms which stood grinning at the back, if you have no intention of taking these ideas any further. To start a book with this sentence, but then take your eye off the ball for a moment and end up writing a 20,000-word guide to Polish war memorials deserves the highest criticism. It's a fault that took me many months of practice to avoid. Others have been less meticulous. I'm surely not the only one to have noticed that Will Hutton's otherwise admirably written economics bestseller, The State We're In, opens with the sentence, This book has been carefully graded so that you can begin with one or two elementary dishes, yet soon be able to set out a full Thai meal with all its unique flavours. Nor is there any earthly explanation other than sheer authorial incompetence for a few stray lines in Stephen Hawkins' A Brief History of Time, which at the end of a brilliant explanation of the symbiotic relationship between quantum theory and relativity, seductively hinting at a unified theory of gravity, suddenly continue... Bevan let out a gasp of astonishment and playful pleasure at the professor's remarks. Oh boy, she yelped like a cat. Tell it to me one more time, cos I'm on fire, particle man. She remembered now their curiously interrupted lovemaking from the previous night and resolved to hammer the door shut this time. The remaining ninety pages revert to a discussion of particle-wave duality within light emissions. Consistency of subject is therefore a prerequisite for even the most vaguely competent stab at a book. But there are more basic concerns that have to be addressed first. For example, what size of book do you intend to write? To resolve the issue, I spent months locked in negotiations with my editor and various 3D cardboard models of my proposed work. One model was for a book 5mm thick and 4 meters high. I'm told it was life-size. We dismissed the notion as impractical. I'd always been a fan of the thickness of Nicholas Nickleby and Wild Swans and wanted to aim for something similar. I was also impressed by the sensible height of the Inspector Morse series. After some arguments and tears, we agreed that the final book mould should deposit into people's hands something thicker than J.G. Ballard, but without ballooning into Robert Ludlam. As for subject matter... I was initially interested in writing an encyclopaedia of folklore, and indeed the first draft of this book went pretty much along those lines. However, one or two changes have occurred along the way. My editor made improvements in the structure, first by eliminating the encyclopedic element, and then by producing a chart which showed how much the idea of a book about folklore is hated by all of the reading public. I'm extremely grateful for her gentle emendations. Since falling in with her and her book-positing cronies, I've become party to a shameful trade practice, which I now feel it my duty to snitch on here, namely that the endings to most volumes of non-fiction currently produced in this country are being fixed by overseas betting syndicates. If you think it beyond the imagination of good writers to sink into the mire, then just look at the following paragraph which ends John Pilger's most recent manuscript recounting his trip to East Timor. The weapons industry still flourishes in this land of the impoverished, and the rain that nurtures it is a rain of hard cash poured out of Western aid budgets. 
It's as grim a certainty that the local arms factory will be in constant production this winter as that Dunfermline will have to pull out all the stops if they want to avoid bitter defeat against Hamilton on Saturday. Insightful analogy? Maybe, but British non-fiction writers are big business in certain parts of the world, and in flea markets all over Thailand and Singapore, illegal bets are being placed on the conclusion of their works. How else can you explain these lines I found near the end of Bernard Levin's latest scroll? Solzhenitsyn then turned and left me alone in the room, and as I watched his frail yet curiously powerful form withdraw, I could only tremble at his parting words that Russia is in a kind of waking death, and that Berwick manager Tom Hendry may face an upset when his youthful side meet Dumbarton at the weekend. A brief glance at the Sunday sports pages at the time of publication will tell you that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was indeed no footballing novice. But why the intrusion of Scottish football speculation in an otherwise dull tome about the elderly? Under normal conditions, the odds on someone like Jonathan Meads ending his restaurant guides with a reference to Scottish Division 2 must be enormous, so obviously somebody somewhere would have made a lot of money when last spring this appeared. All in all, then, extraordinary walnuts, in a quince sauce dribbled onto the plate as exquisitely as veteran East Fife striker Steve Archibald dribbled a late equaliser past Clyde on Saturday. Lunch, £90. Either pre-written concluding paragraphs to pieces are being intercepted and doctored by nefarious Eastern gamblers, or, and it makes me wretch rather loudly even to write this, our authors are accepting cash payments to end their works in an agreed manner. And so, bobbing on this vat of deceit, uncorrupted sails my book, immune to the taints of Scottish soccer. It is the purest entity. I have no great hopes for it, if it succeeds in promoting peace and understanding among even one-fifteenth of the world's population, then it will have more than paid for its production costs. If it deters crime and destroys at a stroke the international drugs problem, then this will be a reward significantly greater than Stranraer's chances of avoiding relegation at the end of the season. The World's Narrowest War I once joined a queue outside a small shop advertising a sale of exciting goods at low prices. I came prepared with some provisions and a piece of yellow bedding. Two hours later, the number of people behind me had grown to maybe six or seven, but word soon spread that this was the queue to join, and within a week we numbered 14,000. The shop was still closed, however, and none of the shop officials who came and went could give us any firm indication as to when the exciting goods would become publicly available. We dug in for a long wait. It was interesting to observe how different language communities tended to queue together. I was positioned in front of a long line of French couples and about 300 yards ahead of a raucous kink of Spaniards. A system of communication soon developed so that it was possible to find out what was going on in all parts of the queue. Someone was having a wedding anniversary 1,500 yards away and we all clubbed together with the intention of buying her a brooch when we got in. The nights were balmy, and dinner parties and spontaneous pavement cafes grew up along the line. Systems of bartering and exchange evolved, and we made a simple currency out of our discarded jackets. On the twentieth day, word came that other queues were forming across the channel and were on the move. We had no idea whether they were hostile, and so sent scouts out to film them on primitive improvised cameras which used a polyester film. 
A year later, the scouts came back with evidence these queues had originally been attached to high street sales all across northern Europe. Once unfastened from these root shops, they simply drifted free and started hungrily looking for discounts elsewhere. What we didn't know then was that these queues had themselves launched a series of small probes up into the clouds. The probes spotted our queue and the continental lines all linked up and headed our way although some of them were fooled by other satellite evidence and went off to attach themselves to the end of what turned out to be the Great Wall of China. We were still none the wiser about this gargantuan column's intentions, though. Would it join on to our end, or try to dislodge us from the front? We prepared for an onslaught. Another year later, still with no sign of a start date for the sale, we spotted the European queue on the horizon. It looked like nothing was going to stop its insatiable hunger for bargains as it swept forward. Little lines of people in its way were easily consumed by this powerful mass of waiting humanity. Within hours, the enemy queue was at our tail, just four or five feet off, where it then suddenly stood and kept an eerie silence. They had not connected. They stood there, this multitude of some three hundred thousand souls, lying in attention mere paces behind us. And we, who had grown over the years into a considerable file ourselves, maybe numbering a quarter of a million patient individuals, could only wait in front of a door to Phoenix and fear the worst. Little did we realise what the worst would be. On the morning of the thousand and first day of our queuing, at precisely 11.30am Eastern queue time, what we took to be an emissary from the enemy line walked across the no-man's pavement separating our two big arrangements. She walked carefully towards us, but instead of stopping behind the gentleman at the end of us, moved forward to some children four or five ahead of him and started barging in. Obviously, everyone around tried repulsing her, but the damage was done. With her attention diverted, it was an easy matter for another invader to move forward and shove in further up. Soon the advance assumed a weary pattern, as every thirty seconds another one came casually up and just pushed in, as if they had every right to be there. On and on they came, one at a time, right through the night, as rude as can be, until all three hundred thousand of them had perpetrated the largest incidence of mass queue barging ever to have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere. By the end, many of us had become demoralised and went home, but others stayed on to fight. Unable to dislodge most of them, we took their names and warned them we were going to report them to the manager of the shop once the doors were open. And now we live with them in an uneasy peace. They outnumber us and have started influencing our decisions with their insidious casual chat. They tell us that the stuff on the first two floors is worth avoiding, and that the real bargains are to be had up in the bedding section on floor four. They suggest that shorter skirts and lighter trousers are probably not going to be the fashion this summer, and that maybe we'd be better holding off for our clothes until next year's January sales. Some even claim they're not interested in the sale at all and have just come to return stuff. Many of us have become dejected and frightened. Meanwhile, the enemy queue people keep letting their friends in. No news has reached me from the door. I can only hope that the sales staff has spotted what's going on and have resolved not to let these monsters in. If so then I will quite happily stand here for another three years until I see every last one of them drop. Our country's integrity over this position must be maintained and their crimes must be avenged. I will defend my God-given right to buy a cheap scarf, even if it's the last thing I do. What on earth are we doing to ourselves and to each other? Lyrics from an imaginary album. Track 14. Think of the rainforests sitting all empty. Think of the atmosphere soiled like a panty. 
Think of the ozone torn to shreds and those baby seals with their concussed heads. A thousand species disappear around about once a year. A thousand more are very poorly. Can't we stop it, surely? Our ecosystems falling down, falling down, falling down. Our ecosystems falling down, we're all crazy. Let's do something about it. If only we got our finger out and stuck it in the ozone, we'd stop our polar ice caps sloshing about unfrozen. There is hope, there is a chance, the earth can be better if we switch to something like a catalytic converter. A million lives are lost because man can't be tossed. A million more can be secure if we used organic manure. Our ecosystems falling down, falling down, falling down. Our ecosystems falling down, we're all crazy, but we really can do something about it. We kill cows and kudu to feed our mammon, and slay the meek and hairy for a hunk of gammon. Yet our population grows fifty times its size, and will get worse unless we compulsorily sterilise. One billion people from Mull to Mogadishu daily propagate enormous issue. Another billion accidentally spawn by dry humping without their clothes on. Our population's going up, going up, going up. Our population's going up, it's so crazy. We must enforce a programme of mandatory birth control on a massive scale. What on earth are we doing to ourselves and each other? What, what, what on a massive scale? Lyrics from an imaginary album, track 19, Shoplifting Girl. Stay while I report you, you can't evade this man. Cause my love I've caught you, running off with ham. Ooh, you're a shoplifting girl, and you're committing an offence by shoplifting girl at a superstore's expense. Yes, you, shoplifting girl, you think you're so smart, cos you, shoplifting girl, have appropriated my heart. I saw your furtive glances, and though my mind was smote, you took some stupid chances, hiding chops beneath your coat. Ooh, you're a shoplifting girl, and my heart's in your pocket. Yes, you're my shoplifting girl, and I want you to drop it, cos you, shoplifting girl, perpetuate deceit, cos you, shoplifting girl, have meat but no receipt. I asked for your name, then melted, O oh Melanie, but I know your game, you're committing a felony. Giblets might look nice to an inveterate thief, but you'll pay a heavy price for stealing frozen beef. Ooh, shoplifting girl, yeah, come quietly, this is the manager. Ooh, shoplifting girl, yeah, it's gonna be all right. Just one or two questions, hand over the venison. Armando Yanucci's Facts and Fancies was produced by Jonathan James Moore. And in next week's Facts and Fancies, Armando will have things to say about diseases and identity cards. 75% of our audience here in the theatre tonight believe French women are more chic than British women. Victoria, Corin Mitchell and guests challenge received wisdom. Grayson Perry, what do you think about this? No, I think they're boring. <laughs> Katie Brand, what do you think? I was brought up to believe that the essence of style was not caring. And in my dress sense, that's the philosophy I very much <laughs> embrace. The new series of Heresy on BBC Radio 4 Extra. I was once mistaken for being French at a party, but I said no with that search Gerard Deputy over there. <laughs> Next Wednesday at 5.30. 
You're listening to Radio 4 Extra. For Extra. For Extra. Where it's always time to party. As promised, time now for retired music hall artist turned rapper Ida Barr. I'd be, I'm a fresh MC from Hackney. I'm old may we, but down with the kicks, you see. I was a star, being in decline since a bungled bunion in 69. I had the art, moved to the time of block, but now I'm hot with artificial hip-hop. Best of music hall, best of R&B, so BBC, are you ready? Welcome to my world, la-di-da. Here she is, Miss Ida Shush, Gertie. Oh, oh, I can't decide. I'm paralysed by choice. Maud Edwards has just gone back to her flatlet next door. She's upset because she's been overlooked again by yet another university thesis on the role of the male impersonator on contemporary feminism. No mention of Maud or her groundbreaking prosthetic trousers or her lovely number. Stand aside, lady, this needs a fella. Oh, lovely song. Anyway, Maud's gone, leaving me with a much-needed moment of peace and quiet. I was going to sit down and listen to something on me decks, but I can't decide whether I'm in the mood for ragga break beats or Harry Seacombe. So here I am, dithering. My sheltered accommodation is inundated with old 78s and white-labeled 12 inches. There's too much choice. I don't know where to turn. So I turn to you, listener. I am recording this on my iPod, an up-to-the-minute cassette recorder with a somewhat greasy earpiece that I can record all my thoughts and feelings on. I got it first as part of a scheme, some grants from the Arts Council to do with recording the thoughts of elderly theatricals under threat of imminent death. Well, it's coming very handy now, because I have been asked by the BBC to investigate in the manner...